welcome to the Writer Dojo with your host, Steve Diamond and Larry Korea. Guys, hello. Oh, deadlines. Today's episode, the best of the Writer Dojo. Yeah. Season 1, episode 12. Dialogue. If you're going to use patois and messed up words in English, do so sparingly, just enough to indicate how that person talks. Don't go overboard. It'd be like having the narrator, your audiobook, doing an accent that none of the characters could, no, none of the listeners could understand. It would be horrible. But that's what people do all the time because they think they need to do that. Like, for whatever, because dwarves always speak Scottish. Apparently. Yeah, you know. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. And Romans all have English accents. You know, that's how it works. But uh, don't, don't be very careful with Patois, guys. One of the things that I, that I see quite frequently is, and you alluded to this earlier, um, it's really hard for a lot of readers to, to accurately depict who the character is just through speaking. Now, when, when Larry and I, an interesting, just an interesting little thing here that happened uh, fairly recently. Larry and I were, uh, we were kind of re- listening to the edited versions of a few, of a few of our first episodes, just to see how we were liking it, and 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 for me to see how how much I hated the sound of my own voice. And the funny thing is, it, when I got to Larry. I was listening to Larry and I'm like, oh yeah, that's Larry. Yep. He talks like this. Yep. He has those. And, and I could picture mannerisms when you were, when you were speaking because we've known each other for a long time. And then it got to me and I was like, I don't know who the frick this guy is. This is weird. But so often it's hard for authors to, um, and, and look where everyone's, every author is guilty of this to some degree because it's hard. And that's really giving unique voices to many, many characters. And I think this is why a lot of, a lot of authors, um, myself included, and, and, and I love telling stories in first person, I kind of, I, it gives me a little shortcut. I don't have to worry so much about the other people's voices all the time. I've got one primary voice. Yeah. But when you get into that kind of that third person narrative, you have so many characters to take care of. You have dialogue going back and forth. And like you said earlier, um, the the fewer dialogue tags I have, the better. Yeah, there's some tricks around around that. Um, think about the character's personality. I like, to, I like to put myself in their shoes when I'm writing them. And I think, how is this person going to present this? And a big part of it is sense of humor. Everybody's got a different sense of humor or lack thereof. Um, so that's a huge part. Um, if you establish how your character's laugh and what they think is funny and you can get that in there it's very indicative of who's talking anger some people are angrier than others some people are more determined than others some people are more religious than others um you know people have these different traits but if you can accentuate those traits through their dialogue it becomes clear who's speaking then there's a nuts and bolts tricks to avoid the saids uh, when I get done with a book, one of the first things I, I do a word search for, I said profanity, the other one is said. Yeah. Um, and to give you an idea, my first novel, uh, actually I did pretty good on this, but my first novel I had like 500 saids in it. Uh, and then my most recent novel I had like 100. 
Why? Because once again, going back to listening to audiobooks, all the unnecessary he said, she said, Bill said, Bob said, it is kind of grating to the ear. And it's unnecessary when you're listening to the audio. Season 1, Episode 17, Grand Theft Storytelling. Look, while, while every story, basically, has been told, okay? That, I don't think there's really any arguing that. At, to, its, to its core fundamentals, everything's been done. Every now and then there is a truly original story, and it's usually weird as crap. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so, so all of that has been done. However, what hasn't been done is your own voice. Because it turns out that, uh, that everyone has diversity of thought, um, to use the, the D word. Um, everyone thinks a little different. Everyone's voice is a little different. And so the key is don't, don't copy people. Don't, when we, we were joking about ripping people off, don't plagiarize. That's evil. Okay. That's like the please worst thing ever. Please don't do that. So when I'm saying, we're talking about ideas. We're talking about that kind of thing. And for example... If you see a character that's a super awesome character, there's nothing wrong with taking that fundamental like character sketch and putting them in an entirely different setting. Yeah, and so you can draw inspiration from characters. Uh, that is perfectly fine, especially when you mix and match things from different things and you put them together and they clash in interesting ways. It's, it's a little dirty secret of Hollywood that when they're pitching stuff, it's almost always their elevator pitches. This franchise meets this franchise. Like Monster Hunter's X-Files meets the Expendables. Right. You know what I mean? And so it's always you take a, a thing that people can kind of relate to and you take another thing they can kind of relate to and you plug them together and there you go. I would say if, if it's really blatantly obvious what you've done, then you have not personalized it enough. It is If it's still obviously... If it reads like mix match, what do you call it? Mix match, mismatch uh, fan fiction where you like collide two worlds together... And it still is obvious what everything is, then you haven't done enough work. I saw somebody the other day said, well, you know, MHI is basically just the same story as Harry Potter. And I was like, what? Oh, is this the one where they said it's just Harry Potter with guns? It's Harry Potter with guns. I was like, I was like how? And they're like, they're like it's, Owen does have a scar. They go, well, the main character has a scar <laughs> and they fight the forces of evil and they both have friends. The main character has friends. I'm like... Dang, I didn't know that we weren't allowed to write about I was friends like, anymore. Uh, okay. <laughs> I was like, well, sir, I mean, they're also mammals. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, quote unquote, things, things happen. Oh, yes. There's monsters. Oh, and somebody's like, well, one has a werewolf boss. The other has a werewolf teacher. Uh. I was like, Oh man. Yeah, okay. Uh, That's basically it's basically the same novel. Yeah. Except I mean, for you can imagine Harry Potter with a three hundred pound pit fighter <laughs> freaking killing machine as the as Harry Potter. Or just imagine Harry Potter with a freaking AR fifteen. I'll imagine Harry Potter if Harry Potter starred Owen Pitt, that book would be done in the first book and he would have just like snapped Voldemort's neck. <laughs> yeah. Season two, episode twelve. How to tell a story in 5,000 words. Like a story in 5,000 words uh, or, or less or whatever, you know, tell a short story. Understand that there's actually, there's actually some logic and some business decisions when you're doing this. Yep. And the more experience you get, the more you can actually engineer yeah. the story to fit a specific window. What are some of the first things that 
that he should be thinking of. He say he sees a query. We're taking, uh, uh, we want fantasy stories, um, that are dark and gritty and, uh, it can't be more than 5,000 words go. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what, what it, it, say, say that pitch comes to you, say I'm the editor and I'm like, Hey Larry, I need fantasy stories, uh, no more than 5,000 words. Uh, dark and gritty. That's actually, that's, that's pretty much how this works that's a lot of times happens. too. Uh, the theme is something like that. So yeah. So if I'm thinking dark and gritty face research, usually I'll take, uh, a walk. I'll take a, you know, an hour and I'll just kind of ponder on it and I'll be like, do I have anything in my, we've talked about idea management before Yeah. in my folder of ideas in my idea <laughs> garden, yeah. do I have any, uh, things that are images or cool ideas or thoughts or lines or characters sitting out there that fit this gritty, dark fantasy thing. My, my idea gardens, a cemetery. Yeah. Steve has the idea cemetery. Yes. Actually, that sounds bad. It's like the ideas go to die, but then you have the ghosts. Yes. You're a, you're a horror I writer. I don't down. know how you do it. Mine's like an idea armory. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> nice. Um, but I'll go through and I'll think, okay, do I have anything already that is something I want to write? And then I kind of brainstorm. Yeah. Uh, and if I don't have anything in the idea garden that fits about that, I mean, oftentimes, like I said, you've, the more you do this, the more practice you get coming up with ideas, the easier it is because you've trained your brain. Uh, I'll go wander around for an hour or two and I'll think about, I'll go for a drive and I'll just think about it and I'll be like, oh, wow. You know, actually this would be kind of cool to play with this kind of thing. And then I'm going to fit it to that theme. I want to make sure that my, always, anytime you're writing for somebody's anthology, you always want to kind of aim to really, you know, hit it. Um, I want to write that story. And my thing is when I'm looking at the 5,000 words, I don't really, I, I'm an outliner, but I don't really outline 5,000 word stories. It's not worth it. A uh, 5,000 word story I can write in a day or two. Yeah. Um, usually if I spend three days on it, I've probably spent too much time. Sure. Uh, if I've spent four days on it, I've spent, I've, I've definitely spent too much time. Um, but I want to get in fast. I want to make sure I hit those themes. I don't need to resolve everything, but I need to resolve something. Sure. Even if it's just a character realization or the character changes somehow mm -hmm. or grows somehow. But for me, um, that's one of my first things. It's okay. What kind of cool characters can I have? How can I get into this action really quick? Um, what, uh, how can I make sure that it, it feels like, like a me story? Yeah. Do you care about them or their predicament within a paragraph? If yeah. you do, you're, you, you're, you're on that track. Yeah. And the thing is, you don't necessarily have to solve the entire predicament. No. You just need to have in this short story, you need to have some sort of progression. Mm -hmm. uh, something needs to happen. Something needs to change. Something needs to grow or die. <laughs> yeah, well, you that's, know, that's usually me. I mean, actually, you'd be surprised. 5,000 words, you can actually tell a lot of stories. But to Larry's point, you're starting in the middle of something, in the middle yeah. of the action. All that other stuff, all that other stuff, it, it is important in some way, shape, or form, but not this story. Well, it's interesting because there's like, uh, the, the term is in media res. Yeah, yeah. Is when, they, is when the story just kind of begins and mm -hmm. stuff's happening and then you figure out what's... What's going on from that point on? That is not nece not necessarily necessary in a five thousand word story, but it does actually help because if you are tempted to have like a thousand words worth of introduction, uh, you know that's taking up space. The biggest key is what's pertinent. Yeah. And so what has to be there, and what is extraneous. And so I, I like the idea of uh, come in when the action's already started, yeah. so you're not spending a lot of time before, 
uh, because that's, you don't have room for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then get out early. The key is on a lot of these is you guys don't have to actually explain the entire thing. People get trapped and they think a short story needs to tell the entire story. But a lot of times a short story is basically you're telling part of a story. It's just a scene sometimes. A lot of times it's just a scene. Season 2, Episode 13, Character Growth and Development. The beginning of any story should show the character as the complete opposite of who they change into by the end of the story and show why that character can't slash won't change as their current selves. The first time they are forced to change is the catalyst, which starts their journey. Oh, good grief. So why is that horrible advice, Steve? Because the the idea that your character has zero consistency throughout the life of their, their journey through their, their plot arc is absurd to me. You think about it. If, if you think about like every successful story there is, there are a handful where a character does a 180, where a character sure. is totally different. But what percentage of stories would you say that no, is? No, it, it's pretty small. If you're, if you, and plus if, if this woman is given advice, like this should be like every story. Right. If every story has the same character arc, what is the point? Exactly. You know, this is more, this is like the kind of story she likes and she's like insisting that everybody needs to open their stories that way. That's just foolishness. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I see in this is I'm wondering if she's thinking of, of the typical like villain redemption plot arcs. The way, the way this, this nameless miscreant on Twitter is, is explaining it is that it's like a heel turn, like out of nowhere, like. They're supposed to all of a sudden be, become a different character. And that's absurd to me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because it's more that you can have a character flip some things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have a character, you know, repent of their evil ways. Or you can have a character go from good guy to bad guy. Or bad to good. Or whatever. bad to good. But they're still kind of going to be on an arc. Yeah. No, usually where this works, guys, and the key on this in characters, if you want to have a character change dramatically a direction... Think about the clues you put in that character to begin with and then exploit those flaws or accentuate those strengths. And, and what I really like doing, Larry, is I like taking characters and their specific characteristics and showing how a, like a, like a very specific characteristic and showing how it can be used in other instances for good showing how other people perceive it, but also showing how it can be used as used against him. Yeah. It, that's an interesting one too, is because you, when you set up the character beginning, you as the writer, you know where you're going to take them. Kind of, you know what direction you're taking this character in. You can do any sort of flip you want, but you got to build those keys in there. And, that, and so if, if we were to follow this advice, it would just destroy the story because we would take him from all these good things and make him an interesting character and we'd throw him away basically. And the whole catalyst thing, you know, whatever. Don't ever write according to a checklist, people. That's the main key. If you want to have your character flip a, and become super evil psycho killer, or you want to have your evil psycho killer become a good guy, you can do that, but you've got to do it organic. you got to do it smooth. Yeah. It's kind of sleight of hand here. Well, it's just like anything else. I mean, if you're not, if you're not foreshadowing, what's going to happen to a character, just like 
what's going to happen in a plot and, and things like that. I mean, think of any, think of any, um, heist movie ever made. There's always, there's almost always that moment at the end where the person who gets taken advantage of in that situation, they do the, like the rapid fire reminiscence over like all the different things, all the clues that all of a sudden make sense in that guy's head. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. All of this was foreshadowed. Thanks for mansplaining and telling a random woman on the internet to shut up because you think she's stupid. I hope I'm smart enough to understand that anyone can write and sell books, even an incel like you. Oh, gosh. Thumbs up emoji. Thumbs up. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, so not to be too cruel here, but here's the thing, guys. The reason I, I brought out this second part is there is good advice and bad advice out there, and yeah. there's constructive criticism and destructive criticism. Correct. And you guys, you know, listen to constructive criticism, but don't, you know, you guys don't have to listen to bullcrap constructive. Or you, you guys don't have to listen to crappy criticism from people who don't know what they're talking about. But the funny thing that made me laugh about this is, like, so a guy who is actually a USA Today bestseller, an international bestseller, says, hey, that's bad advice. You should probably not give bad advice. You should probably listen more. And the response immediately is, thanks for mansplaining. Well, first off, is she a biologist? How would she know? Okay, so there, there's that right there. Okay. <laughs> And he didn't tell her, you know, it wasn't, I would have used more profanity if I had responded, but, um, but then obviously anyone can write books, even an incel like you, which is funny. Cause obviously if you don't like bad writing advice, you have never known the touch of a woman. I think that the deeper issue here is one of, of how you respond to criticism when it's leveled at you and in different, I mean, look, every single person out there, when you're a writer, you're going to receive criticism. Um, you know, sometimes it's going to be from, from the editors who are giving you advice on how to improve your craft. Sometimes it's going to be from re readers and reviewers who, um, you know, maybe they do or do not like your story. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, it's feedback from fans. They might be right. They might be wrong. Sometimes it's feedback from detractors who just want to tear you down. Yes. I'll take constructive criticism, but I won't take bullcrap criticism. That's right. And I, I actually didn't say bullcrap, but you know, well, yeah. we're on the air. But um, no, so the thing is, so be aware, guys, when you take criticism off people, some people are just full of crap and they just want to whine about stuff on the internet. Other times you might actually be wrong. You might be barking yes. up the wrong tree here. Well, and I think the biggest thing here, which is obviously what this, uh, the person who wrote these series of tweets is incapable of doing apparently. And that's showing a little bit of self-reflection. And I think one of the biggest strengths that, um, that new re that new writers can cultivate and maybe some old writers can, you know, teach, you know, old dog, new tricks and all that crap, um, is, is, is to have that introspection. It's a, it's a talent that can be learned. Yeah. You even, and here's the thing, guys, you got to have kind of rhino hide in this business. Mm -hmm. So you got to find the fine line of too many writers. We get really hung up in our own heads. It's because, you know, it's the nature of being a writer. You're a creative yeah. type person. A lot of us get really, really sensitive, but what you need to do is kind of take this stuff as it comes, be analytical. Sometimes they might have a valid point. Other times they might be full of it, but you need to just kind of look and don't break down and be like, oh no, someone criticized me. It's the end of the world. You're going to get criticized. Oh, there's no, you're going to get, you're going to, people are not going to like your stuff. You're yeah, going to there, there are off. no exceptions to this rule. No, the greatest writers who have ever lived have had one star reviews. Oh yeah. Like tons of them. Um, and probably, you know, some of the greatest writers who've ever lived 
um, we have never seen their stuff because they broke down in tears and never wrote anything again after the first time someone yelled at them. Hey, you, yeah, you, listening to this podcast. You like Dexter? Yeah. How about Patrick Bateman? You know, American Psycho? Yeah, you like him too, huh? Well, guess what? I am the female version of both of them together, and then maybe mix in a little bit of Hannibal Lecter. Check out my series, the 13 Reasons for Murder series, at shop.amandabird.net. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Writer Dojo. We are back. Season 2, Episode 16, Sharpen Your Saw. Why aren't you writing? Where's the next book? And it's like, oh my gosh, you piece of crap. What kind of insensitive scumbag are you that this writer is talking about his ultra-sensitive battle with depression and potential suicide? This other dude is like, wow, I'm really heartwarmed that I was able to like help you through this time. And what does he get? You should be right. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with your brain, you friggin' psychopath? So I went off, being me, not there, because, you know, I didn't want to I didn't want to get involved in this, but I went off on no. this. And I've seen it with other writers. There's another writer I know who uh, you know also, good dude, but he's a sensitive guy. He's, mm-hmm. the, he's the opposite of me. I, I am the anti-sensitive. Wait, you're not sensitive? Mm, well, I mean, Weird. I'm... Weird. I mean, I'm sensitive I'm to... I'm so uh, shocked. ...hot food. <laughs> I'm my... Well, actually, no, not even I'm that. Saying, not really. Yeah, no, I'm, no. I'm, I'm pretty much just a, I just brino my way through life. Um, <laughs> but no, there's this other writer who's a sensitive guy and he struggles with depression. He struggles with all sorts of, all sorts of stuff. Um, and the same thing I was watching on there and he, every t- he, he quit going on the internet. He just basically quit interacting with his fans because he couldn't, because he would go and interact with the fans and the fans would just yell at him basically. Yeah, that's not healthy. And they think it was like, well, I, I'm just, I do it from a place of love. No, you're actually being kind of an abusive douchebag. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that, that's the abusive husband that, that hits his wife and then says, I only do this because I love you. Well, and I've seen where people get defensive when you point this out and uh, it's, it is, it's the abusive husband thing. And they're like, well. Or wife, I don't judge. Well, no. And then the, well, I'm not a biologist. <laughs> <laughs> and then. <laughs> <laughs> People will know when we recorded this episode. Um, <laughs> but then you see the thing where they get all defensive and it's like, well, it's only because, and it's only because I like your books or, or they'll be like, well, first world problems. You're a successful writer. Ooh, poor you. It must be so hard. Right. Because success all of a sudden means that you don't have any other problems in the world entirely. No. So guys, this stuff. And so really the way this, this, this episode is, is kind of one part for the fans, one part for the writers. Yeah. And we'll talk about both here, but as writers, guys, you need to like sharpen the saw to borrow the Stephen Covey thing. Yeah, that's right. You need to do this stuff other than work. One of the things that, that we, that we always talk about when it comes to human resource stuff is that there's a reason why, um, employees are given PTO to use. And that's, that's not just so that like they can get out of our hair for two to four weeks a year. No, when people take time off and recharge, they actually come back as a more productive worker. The same thing happens in writing. Um, 
we spend so long in front of the computer just clacking away and clacking away and, and trying to get trying to get crap done, right? But there comes a point when you just have to step away to to recharge and recenter. If you don't do that, your productivity dips. Now, and 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 the same thing. Um, this is a, there's a similar argument to be made for um, for for working, well, regardless of what job you're doing, for long stretches of time in a row. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, there's a reason why, um, you know, you know, Department of Labor is like, okay, if you're a salaried employee and you're working X number of hours, you get certain types of breaks and some of are paid and yada, 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 right? So there's a reason why we have to do breaks. There's a reason why we have to take time off. There's a reason why, um, you know, if a person works more than eight hours in a day, their productivity drops dramatically from, from one hour to the next as time goes on. The same thing holds true in writing, Larry, because I mean, what's one of the very, very, very first things we said when we started this show? And that's that this is a job. If you want it to be a job, you got to treat it like a job. Yep. You know, like. So, I mean, I mentioned sharpen the saw, but in case people don't understand what that means. Yeah, explain that later. That comes from the old Stephen R. Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which everybody who was a business major about me and Steve's age had to read. Um, But one of them was really good because he talked about basically if you take a saw and you just saw wood with it, eventually the saw is going to get dull. And then it's going to take more and more and more effort, ever increasing effort with the ever duller saw to cut through the same amount of wood. Mm -hmm. If you have a sharp saw, you can cut through a lot of wood. And so you have to stop, take the saw out and sharpen it. Yep. You are the saw and the work is the wood. And so you have to take a break. Now, everybody's a little different. And so some of you, you're going to work in big stretches. Some of you are going to like work at night. Some of you are going to work in the morning. Whatever it may be, you're going to find whatever it is your creative energy is. Everybody's different on how they work. Uh, I don't get anything done hardly at all before lunch because I do intermittent fasting. And so I like, I can't really write in the morning. Uh, but then lunchtime I eat and then from basically the rest of the day, I'm great. I can work Mm. like crazy. You know, so you got to figure out what works for you and you got to recharge that brain. You got to disconnect. Everyone has their own things that they like, you know, uh, back, back in the olden days, Larry, when, when, uh, when you were starting out and, and, and we were really getting into the, to the role-playing game group stuff together. Oh yeah. You know, it was, I, I believe the posts were called, um, uh, my geeky hobbies. Oh, isn't yeah, isn't geeky that what, hobbies. isn't that what we called it in the beginning? Yeah. I still, I still do those occasionally. Yeah. When they, when Every I, now, I mean, I, I saw one fairly recently. Um, the main reason I don't honestly is WordPress photo hosting kind of sucks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I remember you do, you know, Every now and then, Larry, you know, you'll, you'll post some, some minis that you paint. Yeah. I, I, you for know. those of you guys who this, know, I paint. That relaxes your brain. Yeah. I paint miniatures. You know, the other day, um, I, I don't, I don't paint miniatures or anything. Um, I'm not good at that yet. Um, but, uh, but what I have been doing, because I, I do have, um, besides the barbecuing thing, I do that all the time. And in fact, barbecuing, literally smoking meat and stuff, that's what got me through, um, my previous job that was complete and other, utter garbage for the last six months of it. But, uh, but you know, these days, um, I, one of the things that that I love almost unconditionally is Gundam. I love, I love me giant robots. Yeah. I love Gundam. I love that stuff. Um, I, I, I just absolutely love it. And so I've been buying, um, the Gunpla models and that's what I, that's what I build on the side when I'm bored. But I do that because I don't have to think about anything. I just, I just sit down. I just put these pieces together and then I see this thing being created in front of me 
And, and at the end of the day, I have a really wicked cool looking robot. Season 2, Episode 17, from the episode Business and Marketing, Taxes. They've started receiving money for some short story sales. They went and had their taxes done at H&R Block. So what the person told um, either Brennan or Aaron was that they might be in some hot water with the IRS for not registering themselves as a business while submitting these stories for publication. And, and there's, a, there's an implied threat in, in here from the tax guy on behalf of the IRS, basically saying like, well, you have to register as a business right now, or you're going to be screwed. And mm, no. that's bull crap. Yeah. No. That's bull crap. So Brandon and Aaron, don't listen to that dude. He's a terrible accountant. Um, go somewhere else. I don't know. Are you, I don't know if they're local. Are they local to us? Um, no. They're not local to us? Somewhere in the West. Okay. Wyoming uh, or Montana. If, if you guys were super local to us, we could have recommended you actually a really good place. Yeah. I, we have a, if you're in Utah, we have a CPA firm. We recommend all the writer friends we exactly. know. Exactly. Actually, we both use the same one, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. There you go. So here's the trouble. People that work at H&R Block in places like that, they're not really any better than me or you just doing our, our taxes on TurboTax yeah. at home. They're okay. not any better than that. Well, because what this comes down to is what the IRS actually cares about is are you, uh, are you paying taxes on your income? That's right. And so if you have sold a short story, you know, if you sold a couple short stories, you've made a few hundred bucks, you're not going to go incorporate yet. Right. But here's the thing. Just put that on your taxes. Just Yeah, just report it. Just report it. Report the um, income. Pay it's the taxes. Such a, especially when it's a small amount. Um, you got to understand the way the tax code in the U.S. works, when it's very small amounts of money, um, there's almost no tax on it. The way the tax code scales, um, the more money you make, the more taxes you pay. Okay? And so when you make almost nothing on it, it doesn't really move the needle one way or the other. Season 2, Episode 21. Pitching and Acquisitions with Dave Butler. Now, how do you write a pitch? So I'm talking here about a letter you would send to an editor or to an agent. Okay. Okay. Here's what I recommend. Especially when you're starting this out, you're going to write a three-paragraph letter. Paragraph one says, uh, my book is awesome. Paragraph two says, my book is even more awesome. Paragraph three says, here is the business. Let's start with paragraph three. Paragraph three is what you want. It'll say something like this. I am seeking representation for Forbidden Pleasures, a mm. uh, science fiction novel complete at 120,000 words. It is a standalone book that I could write further adventures in the same with the same characters in the same universe if desired. Maybe, maybe, maybe relevant qualifications there. Why do I say maybe, maybe, maybe? Because people overestimate how valuable their qualifications are. Do not say if you are a teacher, do not say if you have a university degree. It does not matter, okay? If the book is about uh, zombies based on a real-life neurological condition and your dissertation for your PhD was studying the real-life neurological condition that can cause zombieism, put that. So if you're Rob Hampson. I was going to say, so if you're yes. Rob Hampson. Yeah. If you're Rob Hampson, say, I am Rob Hampson, okay? Yeah. <laughs> um, or, or, I mean, maybe if you have one... Some really recognized prizes. If you won something like Writers of the Future, I might put that there. I would not put I have twice won, been a quarterly semifinalist honor. I just wouldn't. Because when you put something there and it does not look like a real qualification, you just look smaller, mm. not bigger. Right. Okay. So err on the side of putting none. Okay. So you're just describing, what do I want? I am seeking representation or I am seeking a publisher for. Here's the genre. 
Uh, by the way, you want to put a simple genre. You don't say, it is a uh, rom-zom-com sci-fi fantasy cyberpunk novel. Because they just think, well, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you're an idiot. Okay? Right? The question is, what, very, where does it go in the bookstore? be a very long. Right? So go into Barnes & Noble. Very long label. Yeah. And be like, okay, the answer appears to be science fiction. A science fiction novel, the, the ideal pitch, right? You're, you're inviting the editor or the agent to make an investment in you. You're mm -hmm. not offering to be their employee. You're off, You're asking if you can be a joint venture partner with them. Okay. That's going to be an investment of time and money on their part. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you want them to A, have confidence and be excited about your offering, but also B, to think the investment will be small and easy. And so, uh, and, and can be easily terminated if it's not working. So your ideal pitch is Hey, this is a standalone novel. It could be expanded into more. So that's paragraph three. What's paragraph one? Paragraph one, here's what I recommend for paragraph one. I, I would start with a Mad Lib. I would write out a Mad Lib to get all the information you need, and then I would rewrite it to sound as exciting as possible. Okay? Here's the Mad Lib. Uh, this is a story about person, a very brief description who, more than anything else in the world, wants to do this thing, but cannot because whatever is stopping her, she sets out to plan A. If she fails, terrible consequences. If you know all that stuff, you know enough to write a great paragraph one. Paragraph one should be focused on your character. Okay, it's characters who tell the story. So, again, this is a bad place to put your world building. That's paragraph one. And I'm not saying it needs to be short, but it you, you can't just, don't keep jamming things in to try and stick to a three-paragraph format. This is not high school, okay? Reasonably concise. What is my basic story, the basic goal, the consequences, who is this character, and give me some reason to care about her. I was going to say, how quickly can you make the person reading your pitch care and think it's interesting? Right. There are stakes, there's a problem, there's a reason to like this person. Okay. Right. That's paragraph one. Paragraph two, you need to, you, you want to make the reader more excited about the story and what you put in there depends on the kind of book it is. Okay. okay. Maybe you do talk about your world here. This is a new secondary world based on, you know, inspired by East Indian, East Asian sources where this and this and this, mm -hmm. right? Or maybe you've got an ensemble cast, and so paragraph one is about your Frodo, and then paragraph two is going to be about Aragorn. Or maybe there's a really important subplot, and so paragraph one is about the subplot and the stakes. Paragraph two is like, but he wasn't expecting to fall in love. Mm -hmm. If it's a romance, your paragraph one might be the romance subplot, and your paragraph two might be the ostensible main plot. That's it. Three three paragraphs. There, there's a There's a... There's other stuff to talk about, where to get a list of agents, keeping track of them, etiquette for emailing them, or where to get editors. But basically, that's, that's your guide to constructing a winning pitch. Season 2, Episode 24, The Rhythm of Writing, with Craig Nibo. And music overlaps with fiction in some form. And maybe uh, if I can explain it in a way that is helpful to musicians, but also helpful to non-musicians. Mm -hmm. What I would say is a UD. Okay. So first of all, when we write particularly, it's, it's a term used in screenplay writing, but you can also use it in 
novel writing or short story writing, we talk about a beat sheet all the time. Beat is a musical term. So already right there, you're talking about a beat. You're talking about a rhythm in your mm-hmm. writing and your writing does need to have a rhythm and how Absolutely. rhythms work, how rhythms work is they're divided into w- little chunks of time that we refer to as measures. And we take a series of those measures and put them together and we get a beat. So that beat can be something like, so there we have like a, there we have like a two bar beat or that was four bars. Okay. So there we have a four bar beat, but we took the entire four bars to express that entire beat. So one bar beat is like, but then I add in, you know, so I extend that loop out and I make something that's more like, that resembles more of a sequence in a story. So as you're writing, don't think about just the beat, but think about where your beat is going. What sequence is that going? Uh, what, what sequence are you going for and how are you going to resolve that? That sequence kind of becomes a wave that sort of builds up crests and goes back down, builds back up crests and comes back down. We further deconstruct it. And if you're talking about song production, there are different parts of the composition. We have, definitely we have the beat. That's the drums exclusively. And then as we tack layers onto the beat, we get what we call the rhythm section. So the rhythm section is two instruments playing at the same time, or sometimes three. So you have the beat, which is the drums, and you have the bass, and those guys together are the rhythm section. So now we have two layers. You can look at your story the same way. You have multiple layers inside your story. You have your beat that's giving you what you're pulling from your beat sheet. And then over that, you have your second layer and, and those two together are playing. So you got, and you have a bass player. He's all boom, right? So you're putting those things together. You have a rhythm section now on top of that, cause that's all, that's all totally rhythmic with a little bit of melody. We're going to put something called a pad. Now what a pad is in musical composition is it's, we kind of, we often refer to them as footballs because they're kind of thin at one end and then they get thick in the middle and then they're thin at the other end. Sounds like, right. And they're long, lengthy things. And a pad can go over several measures. So you have the beat, you have the rhythm section, you put the pad over and the pad is sort of tying everything together. And if you, if you can go with me on this, you can kind of see how stories are shaping out. You put all that together into something called an ostinato and an ostinato is a repeating phrase. So now we put those three elements together. We have an ostinato that keeps going. It echoes. It can change a little bit over time, but if you're a good composer, you're going to develop that ostinato. I'm not saying that you should repeat what you're doing in your story, but if you can echo elements of your story, revisit things, recycle things, and think about it in terms of little pieces, a beat, bigger pieces, rhythm section, and then an overlying piece, uh, which would be the pad and put that into an ostinato. You're starting to cook a pretty good, you're starting to cook a pretty good song and also a pretty good story, but it goes even further than that. We have melody. So melody goes over the top of all this thing, all this stuff. 
So the melody is like your main character, right? It's your voice. Is the voice harsh? Is it played on a shredding guitar or is it a piano? Uh, think about the tone and think about the timbre of the voice that you're executing. And it might even help if you're writing in voice, because to me, as a musician, voice is all about singing. It's all about timber. It's all about, it's all about those things. So, so is it a violin talking in your story, man? Are you writing from the standpoint of a violin or are you writing from the standpoint of a tuba? Like you're in the middle of an action scene and the, 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 the conductor who is you, the author points at the tuba player and says, do something. What's that tuba player going to do? Right? What's that violin player going to, going to do? Point at the violin player. It's your turn. You're up. Okay. We're moving to the sax player. So in your mind, what do you summon with those musical voices, with that melody over that ostinato that you've already established? And it, it is interesting. I have, I have written with this in mind. I have actually used, used instrument voices to inspire. And you don't have to be a musician to do this. You know what a guitar sounds like, man. You know the difference between a shredded, distorted guitar and a chunky guitar and, you know, but a guitar says a lot of things, but it's still a guitar, right? So you know what it sounds like. So maybe as you're writing a scene, think to yourself, how would a guitar execute this scene? Try that. Wow. (laughs) Writer Dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Correa. Produced by Jack Wilder and Bear and Hair Studios. Theme song, Word Mercenaries by Craig Nibo. New episodes come out every Wednesday wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm slash writerdojo, by leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on the Writer Dojo, email ads at writerdojo.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to questions at writerdojo.com. Shut your mouth. Because <laughs> taxation is theft. Because taxation is theft. Keep going. <laughs> People forget I'm kind of awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And Steve's kind of a sociopath, so it's... <laughs> No, uh I do it this other way. We're rebels. We hate we hate rules. They suck. Government audits. They're big and stupid and dumb and they all want to eat us. That's the best thing I've seen today. <laughs>